3: right rug flooring
1: i'm alec baldwin and you're listening to here's the thing the 2020 democratic presidential primary already gives me a headache huge new policy initiatives get announced almost weekly by every player on a crowded field it's a cacophony
3: The Family Act gives you about 66% of your wages guaranteed... Families that are making $100,000 or less will get up to $500 a month.
1: Which gives every child in America a savings account. But all the major candidates have spoken with one voice about one thing, universal health care. Most have even endorsed Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, similar to Canada's national insurance system sounds simple, at least in theory, but as our president said... It's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. Indeed. I needed someone to break it all down for me, and the choice was obvious. Sarah Cliff of Vox is the clearest, liveliest, most knowledgeable healthcare reporter out there. Not only has she spent thousands of hours reading all the major universal coverage proposals Really, all of them. But she studied foreign systems, too, especially her native Canada. And finally, Cliff started out as a politics reporter. She gets that even the best bill doesn't do sick, cash-strapped Americans any good if it's not calculated to get through Congress and on to the president's desk. As a savvy observer of politics, at one point Sarah Cliff held out hope that the current president— Understanding his base might be the unlikely vehicle for reform.
2: I remember at the very start of 2017, right when he was coming into office, he gave this interview where he said he has a healthcare plan and it's going to cover everybody and like it's going to be cheap and great. I remember I was up on the Capitol and like all his care reporters were like, "Oh, maybe there's a plan. Like maybe he has a like." There's never a plan. There right. just is not a plan. Right.
1: Now this is a topic so broad and so essential in people's lives and is, uh, you know, always in the top three of people's concerns politically during election cycles. What are we going to do to uh, revamp or to improve health care? And in that conversation, and I want to keep this on very layman's terms for the time being because mm-hmm. uh, I'm a bit slow in this area, <laughs> is people will point to the Canadian model and say, just to the north of us, Canada has this system. What does the Canadian system look like to you? What do they do and what don't they do?
2: Yeah, so the Canadian system, I see it as one of the most equal healthcare systems in the world. So what they do, which is unique, is they offer a government-run healthcare plan to all their residents with no charge when you go to the doctor. And that is true for hospital visits, for doctor visits, for kind of the base level medical benefits. And what they do to kind of make that possible, because it's kind of expensive, right, to give everyone health care with no fees when you go to the doctor, they make it a pretty limited benefit package. So there is not vision care. There is not dental care. Prescription drugs actually aren't covered in the Canadian system, which is now seen by Canadians as a pretty big gap and something some Canadian politicians are trying to fix. But what they really believe is that for this core set of benefits, everyone, rich, poor, They should all have access to it. Nobody should be paying when they go to the doctor." And they do end up with slightly longer wait times as a result, but most Canadians I've talked to about this, they are fine with that as long as the rich Canadians and the poor Canadians have to wait the same amount of time.
1: Right. Now, now, when they were arguing about whether or not to have this in, because you can talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about the history of it, how did it come about, what was the argument that won the day? How did they actually pull it off there, that they convinced the, the government and the people of the country that it was in their interest to pay for the lion's share of their medical care
2: yeah, so it's kind of a wild story from Saskatchewan history, which most people are not very versed in. I'm dying to hear
1: some Saskatchewan <laughs> it's history. It's the most
2: exciting Saskatchewan history you'll probably learn all day. So what happened, and it really has some striking parallels to where we are in the U.S. right now. In the 1960s, there was a socialist running to be the premier, which is essentially the Canadian version of governor of Saskatchewan, this guy named Tommy Douglas. Tommy Douglas was running on a healthcare platform. He was running on the idea that healthcare should be a human right. Canada, you know, kind of had a healthcare system, a more rudimentary version of what we have. Right now, women were providing care at home to the best of their ability. There was kind of a makeshift system of doctors. What Tommy Douglas really argued in his campaign and the campaign that he won was that healthcare should be a right for all Saskatchewan residents. And it, it, there's a lot of parallels with the Bernie Sanders campaign, I think. You know, this is a socialist running to be the first socialist premier in Canada he wins, and then he has to implement the thing. And in 1962, July 1st, 1962, Saskatchewan becomes the first universal health care system in North America. Provincially. Provincially. Right. So now we're just looking at one province. Canada has 11 provinces. It is so similar to where we are now. Conservatives making the argument that they don't want the government involved in medicine, that they know best, that they're worried, you know, that the government is going to choose what health care you get and what health care you don't and all the doctors go on strike and Saskatchewan has to fly in british doctors from the national health care service to staff their emergency rooms it's pretty it's like a My wild God. story My. and how long
1: did the strike last
2: 23 days so the doctors what ended the strike what ended the strike is they also fly in this mediator between the Saskatchewan government and the Saskatchewan doctors, and w- they get a few concessions, and it is known as the Saskatoon Agreement, settled on July 23, 1962, and what they agree to is that doctors are allowed to opt out of the system if they want, that they don't have to participate in government health insurance, they can just work privately, but if they are going to work privately, they can't accept government insurance, so it makes a big trade-off. The fees get raised a little bit, they get a bit of a pay raise, and the doctors agree to come back to work. And Tommy Douglas, the, you know, premier who started all this, is actually a bit of an icon in Canada now. The CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, in 2004— hosted this kind of odd television event where they decided they would vote on, like, who was the greatest Canadian. and Tommy he du- the winner? He was the winner.
1: Tommy Douglas. He was voted
2: in this, like, primetime special. I would have thought it
1: was a hockey player, but it's Tommy Douglas. Right. you think Wayne Gretzky would win. The <laughs> Agreement.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens after Saskatchewan does national health care? You quickly see other provinces building their own health care systems to the point now that within a decade or so, Canada had— National health care. And they pay for all of this with tax revenue. So Canada has significantly higher taxes than we do, and that money is, you know, covered— Income taxes. Federal income taxes is what they're financing the whole system with.
1: When— the agreement was made when the mediator from the British health care system comes in and mediates the whole thing and they have what was that was the saskatoon agreement the saskatoon
2: agreement well, what do
1: you what, what do you think was said to <laughs> if you recall or what, what do you think finally convinced them to support this idea
2: I mean I think there was decent political support so you know you do have the doctor saying we don't want you involved in health care but you also have this premier who has run this campaign promising universal health care it's popular you know just in the so same. So they
1: got outplayed politically you think? I think
2: they got outplayed I think they realized once they got three weeks into this strike, you know, the government was not going to bend. They kept saying, we'll come back to work if you don't do this Medicare for All program. And the government just said... No, you know, and eventually the doctors needed a job, right? Right. Like you can only go out of work for so long. They were like
1: the air traffic controllers of uh, the United States (laughs) under Reagan, yeah.
2: And you actually see similar things from when Medicare launched in 1965 in the U.S. You saw some hospitals in the South because of some of the rules around race that you had to treat patients of all race if you were going to participate in the Medicare program. You saw some hospitals in the South say, you know, well, we're not going to take Medicare and eventually they caved because the government has a pretty powerful tool, right? They're going to pay you a lot of money to cover health care bills. You know, usually we've seen historically health care providers come around and accept that money.
1: Why do you think the same thing hasn't happened here?
2: We've never actually seen a state try and do single payer in the United States. We've never seen a state get as far as Saskatchewan did. And I think part of that might be the lobbying that happens even before you get that far. So I think you know, you haven't seen legislators be willing to go far enough. Um, you know, you did see Medicare enacted, and that was a big step in 1965 when the government created Medicare for the elderly, Medicaid for the poor. And that was something the AMA, the American Medical Association, they opposed, you know, both of those programs, which now are quite popular in the United States. Um, so the
1: popularity is what silences the, in the medical community?
2: I think the popularity certainly makes it hard to lobby against them. I think it would be very, very hard for the AMA to launch a campaign today saying, you know, get rid of Medicare and go back to the way it was when you have millions of Americans who are on Medicare who like their Medicare plans. That's a pretty tough sell.
1: How how long after the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, both programs became the equivalent of, like, settled law? They're not under any threat. They're there to stay.
2: I mean— decades for medicaid i think medicaid's a pretty interesting example so medicaid covers low-income americans and it's a state program so your state has to opt into it in 1965 it's created how many
1: states opt into it now All of them.
2: But in 1965, that was not the case. Only about a dozen or so states signed on at first, because one of the things the government said is, you know, we're going to pay part of the medical bills, usually most of the medical bills, but you're going to have to kick in some money, too. It wasn't until 1989 that all states participated in Medicaid. So we're talking about 24 years from the start of Medicaid to universal Medicaid in the U.S.,
1: we were joking before we started uh, recording with you that you were given an assignment. and You were like, "Oh God, not this!" And now, years <laughs> later, you're an expert in this field. Yeah, so it was a little bit. How did bit, it begin?
2: It was a little bit of happenstance. Uh, my first job was at Newsweek magazine here in New York, and I was an intern there um, in right around when President Obama was making his first run for office. And I was on the politics team. The election died down; they had too many people on politics, and I got moved to healthcare and this healthcare debate was starting up in DC. So I kind of just raised my hand to cover it, you know, not knowing that what 13 years later I would still be writing about the same thing. But I think what I really love about this topic is that there's such an intersection between the policy decisions that are made and the personal stories. Like you said, this is such like a human topic. There's so much at stake when people can or can't afford healthcare. A lot of the work I do right now is around healthcare pricing. You know how much is charged for healthcare? And you know we've made this decision as the United States not to regulate our healthcare prices and it's a very unusual decision for a developed country to make. I talked to a family in California who have a daughter with a rare condition and they were charged $25,000 for an MRI. Like mm. that is an astronomical.
3: Why?
2: Because Stanford wanted to charge $25,000 for Why? an MRI. Because you can make a lot of money charging $25,000 for MRIs. And no one
1: challenged them, nobody. No the, regulators, no... Uh, well,
2: there's uh, no regulator to challenge them mm. in the U.S.
1: They're allowed to charge whatever they can get away with.
2: Yeah. So, you know, in this, like, in this particular case, they needed to see a certain specialist who was there, and the specialist said, oh, let's take an MRI. And they figured, you know, how much can an MRI cost, maybe a few thousand dollars. And they weren't
1: warned by the person how much the MRI was.
2: And honestly, the person probably didn't know. You know, one of the things I hear a lot from doctors, because I'm quite critical of pricing, is that, well, we're just trying to provide the best care. We don't know the prices. And that might be the case, but, you know, not knowing the prices has a huge effect on the patients. They should the, know the yeah. I think sometimes when I talk to doctors, I feel like some of their views are a little bit myopic, that their focus is on, you know, we just need to provide the best care, and the patient's going to deal with the bill later. Like, the bill could be catastrophic. For this family, they're not poor, but this bill is a quarter of their income for the entire year. And, you know, the hospital just kind of said, well, that's that's our price. And now they're stuck with it. Um, so, you know, I, I really think it's such like an interesting, fascinating beat where you can see the policy decisions being made in D.C., being made in state houses have such personal effects on all of us. It's so universal. You know, no one gets to opt out of the healthcare system.
1: What was it? There was some uh, Neosporin for $1600. Oh,
2: yeah. His daughter, he's like a 1-year-old, and she managed to like tie a piece of her hair around her toe really tightly yeah. to the point it was turning blue. He takes her to the ER because it's the weekend, everything else is closed. Turns out it's totally fine. They put some Neosporin on it, head home. A few weeks later they get a bill for $1600 for this interaction. You know, I think price transparency would be a start. You know, I think it Who's it would-
1: opposed to that?
2: The uh, hospitals. Right. You know, because it's it's a great system, right, for hospitals right now where you can, like, take people who need care and then bill them and whatever price mug you them them like.
1: them in the alley on the way home.
2: Like, that's a that's a system that really advantages, um, you know, What's the people providing care. What's the number one lobbying healthcare? group
1: for those hospitals?
2: The American Hospital Association. So what
1: does the medical profession itself say on the record about what kind of health care they think the country should have? Mm-hmm.
2: So I think they generally, I see them as aligning with the hospital association. They are the people who are providing care pretty similar to hospitals, so they want to be you know, they generally support widespread access to care. They were supporters of the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of coverage. They also support, you know, pretty high. They they want to get, you know, and this is where you get into, you know, you can frame it different ways. They want to get what they say are reasonable rates for the services they provide. If you're opposing them, if you're an insurance company, you're going to say they want to get outrageous rates for the care that they provide. But they, you know, generally support access to care as long as they're getting paid the amount they would like to get paid. And, you know, I will say it's hard to paint doctors with a broad brush where you have an interesting split. There's been some interesting research if you look at the political affiliations of doctors where you see primary care doctors – obstetricians, generally the lower paid fields in medicine, they tend to lean more liberal, align with the Democratic Party, higher paid doctors, anesthesiologists, radiologists tend to be a lot more conservative. So I will say, you know, there are doctors who support single payer, there are doctors who oppose the Affordable Care Act, but generally if you look at their lobby, they're okay with expanding coverage as long as they're getting paid a decent amount.
1: Now in Canada where there's this core of services that are basic services that are covered by the government, you pay nothing. Does the majority of the population then go out and get a supplemental policy to cover the other side, dental they, and vision and so forth?
2: They do. About two-thirds of Canadians carry some kind of supplemental policy. Also for drugs, too, is a major thing right. that people are buying their policies for. That often works actually pretty similar to American insurance, where it's a benefit at work is that your employer will offer a supplemental plan. One of the things that's actually pretty unique about the Canadian health care system— is they won't let you buy duplicative coverage. So if you live in Britain, you also get your basic plan. But let's say you want a private hospital room or you want to jump to the front of the line for hip surgery, you can buy a private plan that will give you those benefits. In Canada, they, and it's been the subject of Canadian court cases, they will not allow that kind of duplicative coverage because they think it cuts against the equality of their system.
1: So they want to force you to stand in line with everybody else, even if you yes. don't, even if you have the means. Yes. So you you have that description of the system in Canada. We're going to get to the U.S. in a moment. Mm-hmm. Talk about the the system in in, uh, in the U.K.
2: In the U.K., so they you know in some ways it's a much more public system. The hospitals, the doctors, many of them are working for and owned by the government. So whereas in Canada you have a public health plan with private doctors and hospitals. In the U.K., you have a public health plan and public doctors and hospitals. Everyone's
1: on the payroll of the government.
2: Everyone's on the payroll of the government. How do people
1: rate that system?
2: Pretty favorably. You know, um, Brits are pretty proud of their system. If you look at international rankings, the Commonwealth Fund, which is a really respected healthcare nonprofit, they rank the British one above the Canadian one. But, you know, I, I think what's interesting is even though Britain is such a public system, you also have about 10% of Brits who are buying this duplicative coverage to you know, get to the front of the line, get their private room, that they do allow insurance to compete with their plan. And they think of it as like a safety valve, like letting people out of the system, into the private system. That frees up some of the public doctors for lower income people, and it lets the people who want to buy their way. The duplicative system. The duplicative system. Are you a
1: supporter of that duplicative system?
2: You know, I don't know if I would say. I wouldn't even I'm, say support. I wouldn't say supporter. I think it's a more realistic system for right. the U.S. I think you know we have a system where high income people are very used to being able to buy the care that they want to buy.
1: And why shouldn't they?
2: You know, in Canada, they would argue because your access to health care shouldn't depend on if you're rich and poor. And, you know, if, but if there's
1: a baseline of health care that's paid for with the public dollar for them, why would you condemn other people who could have better health care? Because
2: you'd worry about that private system eroding the public system. So let's say, you know, in the private system, doctors are earning more. They like it better. They just stop seeing public patients and they create a practice. Or where if they, By
1: law, you didn't allow that. You said you have to do both.
2: So I think it gets to, like, some core philosophical differences right. between, like, the U.K. and Canada, whereas Canada, you know, at the core of their system, they just don't think money should buy you better health They want
1: everyone to be in pain at the same time. They want
2: everyone, poor and rich, to and be to in be pain moaning. and get better at the exact same time. Right. Like, there's this great quote in um, <laughs> T.R. Reid. He's a fantastic journalist. He wrote this book. Looking Who at does the, he write for? He, um, I think he's a freelance journalist now, but he used to write for the Washington Post. And he wrote a book in 2010. Comparing, um, It's called Getting Better, comparing different healthcare systems. And he has this fantastic quote in it that I've always loved. I feel like it summarizes the Canadian healthcare system better than anything else. Someone told him, Canadians don't mind waiting in line for healthcare as long as they know the rich Canadians and the poor Canadians are waiting the exact same amount of time. I think Australia has a fascinating healthcare system. How so? So they, unlike Canada, they really encourage people to buy a private plan. So I actually think, like, the more I've learned about Australia's system, that they're a promising model for the U.S. where because they don't, they, they've run into challenges raising enough tax revenue, they've decided to deal with that not by shrinking the benefits or weights, but basically encouraging people to buy a private plan that is competing against their own plan, which feels like a much more American version of a health care system.
1: Mm-hmm. So this issue in this country, obviously, appears to be a very partisan issue. Mm-hmm. Are there any Republicans that you can name off the top of your head who you think are strong on good reforms in, in health care?
2: I think a lot of Republican voters are interested in Medicare for All. That's one of the things that surprised Mm -hmm. me. I was actually doing some reporting in um, this area of Kentucky that went like 90 percent for Trump, but also has a ton of Obamacare enrollment. You know, I was reporting on why did all these Obamacare enrollees vote for Trump. And I wasn't there to talk about Medicare for All, but one of the things that came up multiple times from Republican voters was – I wish we could have a system like Canada's, you know, and these are people who, you know, supported President Trump, knew he wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, telling me they liked Canada's health care system. And I think this is a place where you see a bit of a divide between legislators and like the Republican base and how they think about health care.
1: That was health care guru Sarah Cliff of Vox. If you want to hear Bernie Sanders ideas straight from the horse's mouth, here's the thing has you covered. What is the function of an insurance company? It's not to provide quality care to cost way. It's to make as much money as, as they possibly can. And um, you know what I think makes sense to me is we have right now a fairly popular, successful program called Medicare. It works pretty well for people 65 years of age or older. Why not expand it to everybody? Here's the thing.org is where you can find my whole interview with Bernie Sanders now a declared candidate for the Democratic nomination to the presidency in 2020.
0: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
2: L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com.
1: Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Sarah Cliff cut her health care reporting teeth covering the 2009 debate over Obamacare for Newsweek. I wanted to understand what Republican objections to the policy had been back then.
2: That is going to be, you know, government takeover of healthcare. That the government was going to dictate which doctors you saw. So they only
1: talked government takeover of healthcare. Yeah. So and idea that big government is always bad and always leads to something ineffective. And did they were there anybody who articulated any specific reasons why they thought it was bad? So I
2: think I think the more thoughtful critique that right. I saw from Republican legislators is that one of the things Obamacare was going to do it was going to require health insurance plans to cover a wide array of benefits. So something like maternity care, for example, usually in the individual market before Obamacare, health insurers just would not cover pregnancy because pregnancy is expensive. So that would just be a benefit that would not be included in your package. One of the things Obamacare would do, and this is along with like prescription drugs and mental health services, it told insurance companies, you have to cover this wide suite of benefits. I heard conservatives making the argument, you know, people should be free to choose. They should be free to choose a cheaper, skimpier health insurance plan and have that cheaper coverage. And not everyone should be forced into these larger plans. So that's a bit of like a philosophical difference, I think, about healthcare, right? Like whether we think because we're all members of society and we all participate in healthcare, we should be required to purchase coverage for this wide suite of benefits, or if we should give people the option to buy these skimpier plans that often, you know, leave people a little flat-footed when they actually do need to go to the doctor. I think that was a, you know, key actual divide in how the two parties thought about policy.
1: So do you think that there's some sense to that, which is that we should give people some choice?
2: It's it's hard, right? Because if you leave out maternity care, you know, that puts the entire cost on anyone who's going to have a baby. The whole point of health insurance is to spread our health care costs out among a wide group of people so that it's roughly affordable for all of us, you know, even When, you know, I had a baby last year, that's being spread out among my health insurance plans. And the years I don't have a baby, I'm kind of contributing to the other people having kids. It's really hard to let someone opt out and have a health insurance system still work. You know, that being said, you know, one of the things the Affordable Care Act did is it did let younger people purchase catastrophic coverage, you know, coverage... That paid for a smaller amount of your benefits. Essentially, like if you get hit by a bus, it kicks in. But right. you know, and and that went up to age thirty under the Affordable Care Act. Republicans would have liked to let everyone buy catastrophic coverage, but it, it's a big trade-off. You really disadvantage. When you let healthy people just, you know, buy these skimpy plans, you're really going to disadvantage the sicker people who need Well, it becomes coverage. like the power
1: grid, like you're either in it or you're out.
2: Right. Yeah, and- I mean, Democrats didn't like the individual mandate. It was an incredibly unpopular policy. But the whole reason they included it is because if you are going to make an insurance system work, you need a lot of people buying in. You need the sick people. You need the healthy people. And when you have an array of options, when you have like the skimpy plan and the robust plan... The healthy people buy the skimpy plan because they don't use much health care. The, you know, sick people buy the expensive plan with lots of benefits. And the insurance market, you know, essentially... Breaks down a little bit. Sure. You need the healthy people subsidizing the sick people in order to make things work.
1: But where, and just philosophically, when will government and, and society say, "Hey, man, you're 40 pounds or more mm-hmm. overweight, and you're over 50, and your cardiac CAT scan said the following uh, metrics to us: your your insurance is going to go way up. Mm-hmm. You, you smoke." Yeah. Now, right, right now, they're saying, well, you get a discount if you don't smoke. You get a preferred rate if you don't smoke. When are we going to start to hand people the bill for their bad behavior? Do you ever see any countries so in, that do that? Well,
2: in the Affordable Care Act, actually, under Obamacare, if you're buying an Obamacare plan, there is a question about whether you smoke. And if you do, you are going to be charged higher premiums. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's like a checkbox.
1: You could check no and get the right. cheaper
2: premiums. I don't think right. anyone's really following up on that. I mean, one of the things you actually see a lot— Should
1: doctors be obligated to report the fact that you do that? they doctors and they know what you're... I don't know know many people who smoke and lie to their doctor about that.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it gets into some kind of tricky patient privacy issues where you don't want your doctor. But, you know, you see a lot of corporate wellness programs and it's like kind of these ideas. If you participate in the wellness program and like you meet certain wellness metrics, your company is going to give you a discount on your health insurance. Like if you go to the gym or, you know, sign up for some kind of program. And I mean, it's like a tricky gray area. I don't know. I don't know about how national healthcare care systems are handling that right now, but I think it's an issue that becomes a bigger one, you know, as you see obesity rates going up, not just here in the U.S., but abroad. Like, that's a difficult one to handle.
1: But it seems to me now that the inequity of health care mm-hmm. and, and the way it plays out now uh, has broadened in the last 25 years. Is it safe to say that, that an increasing number of people don't have adequate health care now?
2: So you did definitely see through the start of the Affordable Care Act a rising number of people without health insurance. And I think that largely has to do with the fact just health care got really expensive, that there's actually some great Charts, I know they're great for audio, where they show like our healthcare costs used to be in line with the rest of the world through like the 1980s, 1990s or so. And then in the 1990s, in these charts, you just see the US skyrocketing up, whereas like Canada, Netherlands, UK are like growing at a reasonable rate of like 3 or 4% a year. We start growing at 7 or 8% a year. And as healthcare costs rise, it's just harder for lower-income people to afford health care. So you see this growing gap between rich and poor. You know, you don't see it for people over 65 because they're on the Medicaid program. So everyone has access to health care once they get to 65. But Medicaid has always been, like, a pretty restrictive program. It's difficult to get on. It's limited to certain groups of people. In 2014, you had How the, many
1: people does Medicaid service now
2: So right now, Medicaid actually serves about 60 million Americans. It's a really big chunk of the population. And it's actually, you know, the people who have gained health coverage under Obamacare, most of them have gotten it through Medicaid. Before Obamacare, to get on Medicaid, you had to be poor and something. So like poor and a mom or poor and disabled. The Affordable Care Act said, you know, if you are an individual, you earn less than $15,000 a year. There's no and. You just get Medicaid. Um, And that's
1: the law now.
2: That is the law. Well, it's sort of the law now. So the idea was this program would exist in all 50 states. But we had a Supreme Court decision in 2011 that said states get to choose whether or not they want to participate in Medicaid expansion. About two thirds of the states are participating. But some really big states, Texas, Florida, have big populations of low income people who don't want to pay. And they only have to pay 10 percent, I would say. You know, this is a really generous offer where the federal government— But they don't
1: have income taxes in those states or other mechanisms to pay for, and they want to keep it that way. There there is no income tax in Texas and Florida, if I understand correctly.
2: I think that's right. And, you know, they don't want to raise—in any case, they don't want to raise the revenue to— Pay for those programs, um, so and that's really so. You see, with the Affordable Care Act coming into place in 2014, the uninsured rate drops. More people are gaining coverage. Kind of, you see these trends of rising uninsured numbers reverse. Ever since Trump took office, though, you've seen a bit of a reversal yeah. where some, unins- even though the Affordable Care Act is still standing law, some of the decisions they've made seem to have you know led to more people losing health insurance. So what are
1: uh, what are the most evil things you've seen hospitals and insurance companies do when you've been reporting on health care?
2: Yeah. So I'm going to give you two from the emergency room space because this year I've been doing this project on emergency rooms where people have been sending me their ER bills. So I read all sorts of horrific stories all day.
1: You read over a thousand I read. Yes. Yeah, so I have read right.
2: about 1,600 emergency room right. bills in the last year. Um, and so two of the things that jumped out at me. But well, you're
1: laid up with a foot injury. What else are you going to
2: do? <laughs> you just click through this ER That's it. You feel a little better about yourself right. um, when you are are Only dealing with 150 bucks. So one is Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. So this is named for one Facebook founder who donated a lot of money to the public hospital. Um, They have made this really rare decision to be out of network with all private health insurance. They are also the only trauma center in San Francisco. So if you have a trauma, if you fall from a high height, if you are hit by a bus, an ambulance is going to take you to San Francisco General Hospital. And if you have private insurance, they are not going to be in network with your health insurance. So let me tell you, like, what patient I wrote about there who, you know, this was just like a horrific story. This is a guy named Justin who was walking on the sidewalk, and this pole hanging off the back of a public bus hits him in the face and knocks him unconscious. Next thing he you knows, he wakes up at San Francisco General. He has, you know, a severe concussion. He has a laceration to the face. He also ends up with a twenty-seven thousand dollars bill. So this guy was hit by a public bus, taken to the public hospital. And then hit by the
1: public health bus.
2: Yeah, like everything about this was so horrendous. For
1: twenty-seven grand, what kind of treatment did he receive when he was there?
2: He got a CT scan, some pain meds, and some stitches. How was
1: that was it. That was so. It was very, very basic.
2: It was a pretty, yeah. I mean, it was not a complicated visit. And you know, this is a case where he he had no choice. You know, he was knocked unconscious. I think healthcare is the only good you purchase when you're not conscious. You know, someone else called an ambulance. The ambulance took him to the place. You know, he's having this work done when he's not awake. And I think that is that is one of the reasons. You know, I find these ER situations especially frustrating, is because you 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 do have people who aren't able to shop. You can't decide if you want to go to the emergency room if you're having a true emergency. And that creates this monopoly-like behavior where you see this billing at absurd rates because patients just can't say no. Uh, you know, but the,
1: the presumption from when I was younger, what was explained to me once, that they've got to charge mm-hmm. everybody these big mm-hmm. numbers to keep the place hot and ready for the serious catastrophic sure. injury. When you walk in the door and you've got poison ivy, mm-hmm. they've got to give you a bill to help pay for the guy that had the steering wheel go through his neck.
2: Yeah, I mean, I hear that a lot from emergency Not room. Not true. I am very skeptical of that argument. One, because I see the prices just very, the price of being prepared seems to vary wildly from one hospital right. to another. So they hide behind that. It that seems a little bit of a false justification. I, I do understand. You know, they need to keep the lights running. They need to keep it on. They need to be ready for the gunshot wounds. But they also charge the guy with a gunshot wound a lot more than the poison poison ivy person. Hmm. Like they essentially have these things called facility fees where if you're, you know, the poison ivy person, you get a level one facility fee. But if you're a gunshot person, you're going to get level five and that's going to be quite expensive. So it's not like, you know, I do understand people have to contribute. But is that avoidable? It doesn't happen in Canada, right? Like if you have a healthcare system where you decide that patients shouldn't be the ones Bearing those costs, then you you can avoid it if you want to create a policy situation that avoids it.
1: Plus, that more and more uninsured people are using mm-hmm. emergency rooms for regular medical care. They go there with the flu. Mm-hmm. They should be seeing a doctor, and they shouldn't be cluttering up emergency rooms. But they got nowhere else to go because they don't have any insurance.
2: Well, and I mean one of the things I see a lot in the, all these bills I read are people end up at the ER on nights and weekends because they, they know it's not an emergency, ro- but it's the only thing that's open, and you know it's often. Like their young kid did something at a weird hour in the night, the urgent care said we can't, we don't see pediatrics, or the urgent care isn't open, so they go to the emergency room. So it just, it's, it's a hard system for patients. There's like, it really feels stacked against you in that sort of way.
1: Now, I mentioned who's a hero of the Republican side, and you didn't come up with a name. <laughs> uh, is there one you think of that's a villain?
2: Oh gosh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, one of the hard things here is that Republicans just. They don't put a lot of their energy into healthcare policy, I would say. You know, when I was covering the repeal debate in 2017, it was very clear that, you know, Republicans are almost like the dog that caught the car. They won on this campaign to repeal Obamacare. And I was like, oh, crap, we actually have to come up with a replacement. And they were not— able to do it. And I think, you know, it just speaks to, like, a fundamental difference in the issues that Democrats and Republicans are thinking about. Democrats are thinking about, um, you know, how can we cover more people? How can we, you know, make health care access more equitable? Republicans wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but then it was kind of like, didn't know what and came next. What? Yeah. And then what? And it wasn't clear. Like, whenever I would interview people in 2010 about, like, well, what are the goals of this healthcare effort you're working on that would become Obamacare. And they'd say, you know, we want to increase access and reduce costs. It'd be some version of that answer. When I would interview Republican legislators about this, it'd be like, well, we want to repeal Obamacare. And they think because they did not have and then what, it all fell apart.
1: Who's the person that you think expresses the best possibility of where we go forward from here?
2: So I think Sanders does have a very strong vision for where we go from here that he spent a lot of time thinking about. Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Booker, all of them are signed on to the Sanders Medicare for All bill. I think he really— This is his issue. It is his issue. You know, he spent a lot of time—I went with him on a reporting trip to Toronto about a year ago, you know, looking at the Canadian healthcare care system. You know, I think he very much understands the goals of what he is doing, why he wants to do it. I don't know that his vision is the one that we end up with, but I think it's by far the clearest— articulation I've seen of, like, here's the problem. Here's how I want to fix it. And I think Sanders aligns himself with the Canadian system. So he really abhors the idea of having insurance like Britain's that lets you skip to the front of the line. And this is, like, a very core principle for him. I think it's also going to be a reason why his bill would struggle in Congress. Um, you know, I, if I saw us moving to a national system, I'd expect there'd be some kind of private health insurance option. But I think, you know, it's I think he probably— stands out as, like, the best articulator and the person who kind of best understands why he wants the system he wants. Like, he has, like, a philosophical underpinning that kind of leads him to make certain policy decisions in his vision of national health care.
1: Are you calling that Medicare for all? Yes.
2: Most candidates envision calling this national program Medicare. Medicare is really popular. It polls well. I think when you do polls of single payer versus Medicare for all, people like Medicare. Actually, in, in Canada, it's also called Medicare. So right. um, it's a popular one. I mean, it's worth noting the program Democrats want to create is very different than Medicare. In Medicare, you have to kick in something like 20 percent of your health care costs. Most people buy private insurance to fill in the gaps in Medicare. So the program that they're suggesting is not giving the current version of Medicare to everybody. But since we all know what Medicare is, Medicare is popular, that's kind of become the terminology for a health insurance plan for everyone.
1: Um, Why do you think, what's the number one problem right now today, you think, with the pharmacy business?
2: I mean, I think the prices are the obvious problem. Insulin, you know, this is something that was discovered in the 1920s. hasn't really changed. The prices of insulin are so And insulin is something diabetics need to stay alive. This is another case where, you know, you can't shop for insulin. You can't decide what's too expensive. So, you know, I interviewed one patient who, you know, she said, if I don't take my insulin for a few days, I'm going to die. Like, I'm not, like, this is essentially, like, Taking the price of water and tripling it, right. and well, telling, they're going to get
1: there too, by the way. And telling me they're going to yeah, sell exactly. <laughs> water as a commodity in the next twenty years. And telling
2: me. me as a patient, like, well, you come up with the money for it. You know, and she's someone who she st- stays at these jobs she hates because she just cannot live her life without health insurance. So she, her whole career, you know, she told me one thing: she went to law school because she felt like law was a stable profession because she'd always have health insurance. Like, that's a crazy way to live, that she is making every professional decision, every personal decision in her life around access to insulin. And so I think, you know, one of the things with pharma, the the prices are outrageous in the United States. And this comes back to the fact that the U.S. is the only country that is not regulating the prices. You know, when a pharma company wants to go sell a drug in the U.K., they sit down with this agency called NICE, the um, National Institute for Clinical Excellence, Uh and NICE basically decides, like... Pharma says, here's how much we want to charge. NICE looks at how effective your drug is and says, here's how much we're willing to pay. And, you know, if they can come to an agreement, it gets added into the national program. There are some drugs where, you know, England says no. There have been a lot of controversies around certain really expensive cancer treatments that the national system in the U.K. won't cover because they just don't think they are worth the money. So, There certainly are some trade-offs that have to be made. Like, there are some very outraged cancer patients in the U.K. who say, like, I want the government to cover this, and they're not going to cover it. Whereas in the U.S., you probably could get coverage for it, but it's going to be incredibly expensive. So that's a big trade-off between a system like ours and a system, you know, like the U.K.'s. But I would say at some point the drugs, and we're at that point, they're getting so expensive that it's like, yes – you have access to them, but if you can't afford them, what does that even mean? What's your other
1: option? And when, when you and when you use insulin as an example, what I'm wondering, what is it about their lobbying arm, to the extent that you can uh, talk about that, that makes them so powerful and so effective? Yeah, so they, Is it just money?
2: I think a lot of it's money. I think there are these ads that ran during Clinton care, these um, Harry and Louise ads that are kind of like burned into the memory sure. of anyone who worked in healthcare. I'm talking about campaign dollars, too. Yes, yes, campaign dollars. And they really launched like an all-out assault on Clinton care that really— was one of the reasons why that was not able to go forward. I did think they launch
1: an equivalent one on Obamacare? So they
2: didn't. And this is, you know, a theory of government that the Obama administration had. The Obama administration felt like they could not survive a pharma onslaught. So one of the things they did, and they felt the same way about the AMA, the hospitals, they felt like if these guys, you know, line up against us, this won't survive. So they got them all to endorse the bill. And that was a big trade off because there was sort of, you know, pharma was not going to endorse a bill that regulated drug prices. So they said, OK, with Obamacare, we are not going to regulate drug prices. We'll put a small tax on the pharma industry. Basically, they created taxes on all these industries but didn't regulate their prices, and that got them all to sign on. You know, I I don't know if the current Democrats operate under that theory of governance anymore. I was, um, you know, just meeting with Pramila Jayapal, who runs the House Progressive Caucus, and rolled out a Medicare for All bill recently, and she basically feels like, you know what, like— Fuck that. Like, we are beyond that. We are not having pharma endorse our bill. Like, we are doing a bill, you know, and bring, The goal is
1: to piss off pharma. The goal
2: is to piss off pharma. Spend as much money as you want. Like, yeah, we are ready it for it. They see a lot of bad outcomes of bringing industry on board with their health care bill and kind of have a different view than Obama did going into the Affordable Care Act.
1: Uh, let's assume that uh, everything stays as it is right now. And uh, we have, uh, um, uh, at least in Congress, we have a Republican Senate and a Democratic mm-hmm. House. And uh, the White House changes hands, mm-hmm. Sanders or whoever, or Kamala Harris, whoever, mm-hmm. in the White House. What kind of plan do you think there's a chance we could end up with? Or I
2: think you'd see a lot of like the assault on the Affordable Care Act. They'd probably like, redo some of the stuff you can do through the executive branch try and shore that up. It's going to be hard to do these sort of things through executive action. You know, it is going to be hard without having the Senate. It is hard to do a half-assed version. A weird idea I've heard floated, (laughs) which, like, seems to engender a lot of lawsuits, is that it is much easier to just lower the eligibility age of Medicare from 65 to zero, which is, like— very odd way to do this like a lot of benefits would be missing That is like not the sanders plan mm-hmm. but i guess that would be like a version of this um that could be done without as much legislating but i think it's going to be hard and divided government to move forward on this um, i think it's it's a big idea that gets a little bit stuck in the wheels of congress
1: are you someone who you think it's essential that we have to have a tax increase in order to afford that
2: We do. I mean, we need to to get the money from somewhere. And, you know, if you talk to Bernie Sanders about this, he'll say, yes, there'd be a tax increase, but also nobody would be paying their health insurance premiums anymore. So, you know, the things getting changed out of your paycheck or taken out of your paycheck just get changed a little bit. But I think that is where these programs run into a lot of challenges. Um, There's this guy at Harvard. His name's William Shao. And he's kind of like, if you're a country who wants to build single payer, he's like the health economist you call And when I've interviewed him, he's, you know, worked with about a dozen countries. And he says about half of them fail. And the reason they fail is always the step of how do you pay for the thing? Like, you can come up with a really cool system, but the place where it always gets hard is, like, figuring out, okay, how do we pay for that system?
1: Right. Do you think that healthcare is at a crisis in this country right now?
2: Yes, I think so.
1: And what qualifies it as I think what
2: qualifies it as a crisis is you have people— still going into really significant crippling debt to afford healthcare that they can't say no to like I look at the example of insulin like that seems like a crisis to right. me that people that there, there are reported stories of people dying because they cannot afford their insulin mm. like that feels like something fair to call a crisis
1: um, what's next for you what are you working on now
2: I just know I need to stop
1: reading emergency room bills at some point. <laughs> Which country has the worst healthcare system, as far as you're concerned?
2: Oh, God. I mean, I think we, uh, developed countries, it's got to be the U.S., right? Yes. Like, we, if you look at any rankings, we're always last.
1: Incredible. Just incredible. The United States healthcare system, or hodgepodge of systems, ranks the worst in the developed world. We spend the most for the worst outcomes. The United Kingdom spends literally half the amount per person as the United States and fares better on hospital safety, on many disease outcomes, on infant mortality, preventative care, and more. Brits even live two years longer than Americans. You can find Sarah Cliff's reporting, including her fabulous, frustrating emergency room billing project, at Vox.com. Her podcast Telling the human stories behind healthcare policy is called the impact. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
3: June 30th, 2024.